Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 to 26. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. We have a chance... I want to talk to you for a second. How many of you like animals? Wow, we've got a bunch of kids today. I'm a, I'm a little bit of an animal nerd myself, and I enjoy just learning about them. And I learned something new this week. They're one of the hungriest animals in the entire world. All they do is eat and eat and eat. They're always hunting because all they can do is think about eating. They don't have time to think about anything else. Do you want to see this animal? That's what this animal is. This is called a pygmy shrew, and it's one of the hungriest animals in the world. You were probably expecting something huge. This is one of the smallest mammals in the world, too. They can't go much longer than a half an hour without eating. They have to have food. They always have one thing on their mind. Well, Paul, you've probably heard his name. Paul, the guy writing this letter in our Bibles, was focused on one thing. He was focused on Jesus. His whole life was about Jesus. He couldn't go very long without thinking about Jesus or telling other people about him. People thought he was crazy, but he was the happiest man you would ever meet. We want to be like him in a lot of ways, but Don't tell Paul that I compared him to a pygmy shrew. He might be a little bit offended at that. This morning, we're coming back to observing Paul's attitude in prison as he awaits his trial. We're told in Acts 28 that he was there for two years at his own expense. That's a good bit of time to compare and consider both possible outcomes of his trial. Would he live? Or would he die? Should he make plans on the assumption that he'd make it out of Rome? Or just throw in the towel and give up because his doom was near? The Philippian Christians who are reading this letter probably wanted to know how Paul was processing all of this. He told them last week how he understood his imprisonment. He took joy and was thrilled by the fact that his situation was a way to advance the gospel. 
But now he turns to the future. He looks ahead, and we see Paul in full form. We see a former Pharisee, the self-proclaimed chief of sinners, an apostle who is human, just like you and I, looking ahead with joy. Paul's not just confident. He's not just full of courage and settled in his mind. He's rejoicing. What was true last week is true this week, friends. This sort of untouchable joy is not reserved for Paul. It's here for you and me. We have access to it. What we're tasked with today is to listen to the Holy Spirit through Paul's example and trust that God can accomplish this in us too. For that reason, the whole point of this sermon this morning is going to take, take the form of a sort of prayer or a blessing. Why? Because I think many of us, myself included, have a hard time believing that we have access to this sort of life, this sort of joy, this sort of resolute commitment to Jesus and satisfaction in Jesus. Sometimes we feel like it's just out of reach for us. Another reason why this will take the form of a a sort of prayer is because Paul references the power of prayer for one another right in this passage. So, Here's what I'm asking God for you this morning and what you can ask for yourself and what we can ask for one another. May the controlling desire of your life be that Jesus would be magnified through you at every point so that you would rejoice at knowing him more in this life and that you would see your death as a doorway to gaining Christ fully. I'll read that one more time because it's a bit, a bit long, but... May the controlling desire of your life be that Jesus would be magnified through you at every point so that you would rejoice at knowing him more in this life and that you would see your death as a doorway to gaining Christ fully. We're just going to split that into two pieces this morning. So first, may the controlling desire of your life be that Jesus would be magnified through you at every point. Last week, we touched on the fact that Paul wanted what he wanted in life was Jesus to be proclaimed. I, all I care about is Christ being proclaimed, even if it was damaging to my own reputation, even if, if it meant it would bring harm to me or that my name would be trashed as a result. Paul had been brought by the power of the Spirit to make a choice that that is what would bring him joy not his circumstances. We face that same choice as well. But here, Paul peels back another layer of his deepest desire for his life, especially when it comes to his future. And that's instructive for us. He's talking about, this is my deepest yearning for the life that's ahead of me or whatever is ahead of me. That's instructive for us. He says, what then? In verse 18, he's talking about his name and his reputation being damaged, but still Christ is proclaimed. That's, that's what I want. That's what I rejoice in. What then? Only then every, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. But that doesn't end his rejoicing. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored 
He would be honored or magnified or made much of in my body, whether by life or by death. We have to admit that Paul is in a very unique situation, and it's easy to chalk his enthusiasm up to being energized by the persecution somehow. Kind of like an Olympic athlete gets all hyped up for their moment to shine. Paul's just on cloud nine because he's a fanatic and an apostle. No one else would be so crazy to be excited about what's going on. I know we're subtly, I know I am subtly drawn to think that way, that, that like, like I said last week about the apostles who were rejoicing after they were beaten and released from the, the religious leaders, that they're a different breed somehow. That's not true. But that's the point of this request. May the, may the controlling desire of your life, the same controlling desire that, that leads Paul, may that be true for you that Christ would be magnified through you at every point. Paul is proof that it can happen. Paul is proof that it can happen to the worst of us. And it can become true of you and me. We can be so enthralled with the glory and the worth and the beauty of Jesus Christ that him being magnified becomes the controlling desire of our life, the, the single thing that we want. So what did that look like for Paul? Well, for one, he's not just taking joy in Jesus being proclaimed right now. He's taking joy in what God will do through him because he is sure of a few things. He was sure that through the Philippians' prayers, coupled with the help of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ himself, that this situation would turn out for his deliverance. Paul's aware that prayer is not at all frivolous. Isn't that a gift to know for us? I can think we, we spent, spent time praying or earlier. We've prayed multiple times during our service. And to know that none of that is wasted time. None of it is frivolous. Your prayers, along with the prayers made on your behalf, so I think of the people that we've prayed for this morning, new members, we've prayed for the Comstons and the Fowlers and the Martins. Those are not frivolous prayers thrown up as, as like a uh, formality. Those are real, needy people coming by Jesus' blood to a holy God and saying, you have power to do things that we are asking you to do. Which means subtracting prayer from situations matters too. Sometimes our, our prayerlessness is, is in play but just to know that God hears our prayers and he puts them to work because Paul puts them on a similar plane to the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus. Your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus are what's going to turn out for my deliverance. It's interesting that he doesn't just say the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, the Holy Spirit, who is supplied by Jesus himself. That's not to differentiate as if this is a different person, but he's saying that Christ will be with me and he will help me in a, in a very real, present way, not, not in some kind of ethereal, like, like he's going he's gonna, to um, 
support me from a distance or whatever. Christ is going to be here. He's going to be helping me. And that will result in deliverance. But deliverance from what? From imprisonment or from a bad verdict at his trial? Another translation says salvation instead of deliverance, which is a bit more fitting because he's talking about the deliverance, the salvation from judgment at the end of it all, that vindication, that final approval of God. It's the same way that Job talks in Job 13, 16. He says, this will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him, God. In other words, he's going to be cleared and able to stand before God guiltless. The same is true for Paul. Paul doesn't know if he'll be delivered from a guilty verdict. He, don't, he, he doesn't know if he's going to be released from prison. But what he does know is that with the Philippians' prayers and the Spirit, he will be able to stand before God at the end, having been faithful to the end. So, our prayers have a real strengthening effect on those whom we are praying for, as does the real presence of the Spirit. Paul's so sure that God will do exactly what he will do in the Philippians, which is complete the work that he started in them and in Paul too. He's not cutting himself out of that. He's banking on the fact that God's going to complete this work. He's going to preserve me till the end. He's going to welcome me at the judgment. And it's not this is not self-confidence. This is Paul relying on God's promises, and he knows that he's not going to be snatched from God's hand. Another thing that he is certain about is that he will not be ashamed of Jesus, but that with full courage, Christ will be magnified in his body, like in this life right now, whether by life or by death. He says it's even my eager expectation and my hope that's not something who's wishing, somebody who's wishing or waffling. He is sure. Paul is moving forward knowing that he will be given the words by the Holy Spirit to proclaim Christ even at his trial and that he will have no reason to be ashamed to proclaim Christ and that Christ will be honored in his body. It's not just an act of will. I'm just going to make doubly sure that this happens. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prepare and hype myself up for when the moment comes, I'll make sure. It's an expression of faith. In essence, I see Paul saying here, Jesus, I trust you to make yourself known through me however you wish. I trust that you are so set on that that it's going to happen through me and that I'm not going to have reason to be ashamed of you. God is dedicated to his own glory and he will make much of his name through us and we can count on that. And it's for that reason we don't have to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul told the Roman Christians in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now it's at this point where the Philippians might read verse 20 with a gulp. Wait, you said whether by life or by death. Paul, you're saying that you might not make it. You're saying that your death will magnify and honor Jesus Christ. That means death is on the table as a possibility. 
How heartbreaking would that be for you to hear your friend say that? And it's sobering for a man who has considered the reality of his own death by martyrdom and to hear him go on rejoicing because his deepest desires are being fulfilled in that process. You see, Paul's heart is ruled by one thing, which is magnifying Christ. He wants to see Jesus proclaimed right now, and he rejoices at the prospect of being strengthened to go on proclaiming proclaiming him during his hardest test yet. Paul is drawing from deep, indestructible wells of joy found nowhere except in the union he has with his Savior, Jesus Christ, his Lord, his God, his closest friend, his help in times of trouble, his joy, his shield and strength, his mediator, his righteousness, his shepherd. Paul loves Jesus to his core, with all his soul, his mind, and his strength. And at his darkest hour, he knows and is sure that this Jesus is mighty to answer prayers and supply Paul with his spirit so he can have courage and be able to come to the judgment at the end, able to testify to Jesus himself that I did not shrink back, I did not flake, I eagerly and courageously proclaimed Christ. There's a reason why we can see Paul as a quote-unquote hero of the faith. He was steadfast, but again, he was just a man. He was only steadfast because his life and joy were rooted in Christ and his desire was to see Jesus magnified through him, a weak and sinful vessel just like you and I. So what can we draw from his example? First, I'd ask you, what what would you name as your controlling desire? I've been using that phrase, controlling desire, just because something drives us. Something is always driving us. In other words, the question could be rephrased, what, what makes you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Is money your motivator? Is comfort your controller? Or is Christ the one who compels you? Maybe your life feels fractured and fragmented and confused as if all your priorities were put into a bowl and just mixed all together. Friend, you need something to center all those pieces upon. You need one controlling desire rather than 15. And here's something you might consider. We can't just flip the switch on our deepest desires. Some of those have been forming from our youngest years, the things that we long for most, the things that we want most in life. We can't just snap and make it change. So ask the Spirit to bring you to want to know Jesus and to see him magnified in your life at every point. That is a much welcome and a valid request before the Lord. I want to know Jesus and I want to see him magnified at every point in my life. You might ask, well, how, how does Christ get magnified at every point in someone's life? And to that I'd answer, I'm not, I'm not sure because I'm learning with you. And I'm looking at Paul thinking, there really wasn't a thing he did without Jesus in mind. Can that be true for us? Can that be true for me? I think it can with two things that Paul references, prayer and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I believe it can be true of you and I that at every point, whether sorrow or joy, 
or life change or tragedy or day-to-day, Christ can be magnified through you if we are drawn to love and treasure him as Paul did. He was not content with a life that is happy to put Jesus on the shelf or to shut him out of our lives at a certain time of day or when we're with certain, a certain group of people. I referenced it a second ago, but this is an outworking of the greatest thing that God has commanded us to do, which is this, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In other words, with all of you. Isn't that interesting that God's, God's command is not first make sure you do this, this, and this. His first command is, love me with everything you have because I, I have loved you with all that I am. It's a, it's a fitting thing for him to demand from us and yet it is the most joyful thing to take part in, to love the Lord your God. And this morning is a, a chance to confess how little we, often, how, how little we love God that way. And then, in the freedom of forgiveness, to turn right around and ask God to fill us with a love for Jesus that makes magnifying him our deepest daily desire. We don't have to sit there long, Lord, I have, I have not loved you with all of me. And I come through the blood of Christ and ask you to forgive me, change me, change me. And now, Lord, because you have for even my moments of lovelessness towards you. Will you fill me? Will you fill me with a love for Christ that I've never, never known before up to this point? I want, I want to love Jesus in a fuller way so that my life can be made about magnifying him at every point. Why would we want that to be true? That leads us to the second the second part of this prayer. May the controlling desire of your life be that Jesus would be magnified through you at every point, point number two, so that you would rejoice at knowing him more in this life and so that you would see your own death as the doorway to gaining Christ fully. Listen to where that famous statement, to live as Christ, to die as gain, fits in this passage. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between these two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, Philippians. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ because of my coming to you again. There's always ever only two options. And most of the time, dying is never a good one. For many of us, death has always felt uncertain. Death is so 
unfamiliar and so unavoidable and final. For Paul, though, knowing Jesus and being saved by him has redefined the purpose of life and death. It has redefined the purpose of life for Paul as well as the purpose of death. When faced with the reality that he might be executed, Paul weighs the options but is certain that Jesus is going to be magnified either way. One of the most important pieces of our prayer this morning are those words, so that. We, we need to be changed by the Spirit so that magnifying Christ becomes the sole aim of our life. And we want that so we will have joy in knowing Jesus. And so we will see our death as a doorway to being with Christ. I would guess that you might have an idea of what he is saying when he says to die is gain. You've probably heard a good bit about that. But what about the first part? I found the first part even more mysterious. To live is Christ. It's only a few words, but it makes me wonder, Paul, what do you mean to live is Christ? I see kind of like an equal sign there. To live equals Christ. Like what... What do you mean? You can hear Paul thinking out loud as he considers what being released from prison and declared not guilty would mean for him. To live. Christ. I just imagine his eyes lighting up at the thought of continuing on. What Paul is pointing to here is the fact that nothing except being with Christ trumps the possibility of going on knowing and worshiping and proclaiming the Lord of all. To live as Christ. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We were singing something very similar to that. Yet not I, but through Christ who lives in me. This resurrected life that you and I have is the result of Christ raising us up and he himself is living in us. So we live this life by faith in the Son of God. He's the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Paul is sold out for the one to whom he is indebted. He rejoices at the thought of knowing Christ more. He says later in chapter 3 of Philippians, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of what? The surpassing worth in knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This isn't just a matter of priority for Paul, as if Christ is the first among many. I I can appreciate the way you've probably heard a lot of people explain this pecking order. It's, It's Christ, it's family, it's the church, its friends, its neighbors, you know, the priority of our relationships. But I don't, I don't think Paul is looking at this in the form of a pecking order. To him, life is about Jesus Christ. And all of those other very important things are infused with a pursuit of Christ. To live for Paul, you want, you want to know like a definition of living it's to find more hope in Jesus, 
to love Jesus further, to experience more of the power of his resurrection, to know the depths of his love and precious promises, to further follow him in obedience, to submit all of my life to him. Paul sees life as an overwhelming positive. He even relishes the fact that there will be more fruitful labor to be had, more souls to be saved and churches to be planted. He's not wishing his days away or trying to find an early exit. Whatever days are given to him, he will spend them magnifying Jesus, even if by making tents and selling them in the marketplace. Again, don't get it twisted. Paul's not ready to hit the eject button. For him to live is Christ. In fact, Paul had some certainty that he would remain alive for the sake of the Philippians. He knew that if he came to them, that they would rejoice and glory in Christ for preserving him. If Paul survives this, it is for their progress and joy in the faith. So his desire to see Christ magnified to the Philippians was stronger than his own desires to be with Christ. Talk about looking to the interests of others and counting them more significant than himself. How would you sum up what your life is all about? This is a similar question, but first was about your desire, but right now, kind of taking stock. How would you sum it up? We want Paul's experience because the Spirit has produced in him true and lasting joy. But in order to ask the Spirit to work in us, it might help us to know where we're starting. To live is what for you? To live consists of what? For some, you might honestly say, to live is worry. To live is that one particular goal, and after that, I'll be satisfied. To live is maintaining the status quo and not rocking the boat of my life. To live is making it through the next day. To live is undesirable. To live is getting wearisome. To live is to keep my walls up high. To live is earning a dollar. To live is giving my kids a better life. To live is just making it to the finish line. To live is getting out of this hole that I've dug. Friends, those desires or those circumstances reflect just the reality of our lives. We are all somewhere in that mixture of yearnings and fears. Some of our desires are tainted with sin. Some are important and good. Some are misplaced. Some are wrong altogether. But none of them are meant to sum it all up. Church, only one banner was meant to fly over your life, and it's to live as Christ. To live, my definition of living in accordance with Paul's is more of my Savior, more of the one who has ransomed me by his death and has proven to me that this life is more than pointless. The one who has sent me on a mission to make disciples of all nations and who has given me his spirit to enable me to work or to parent and to eat and to think and to suffer and to notice others all for his glory. If the controlling desire of your life becomes magnifying Christ, 
you will be able to rejoice about this life that you have and the days that you have left as you go on knowing Jesus. But how about the other half of Paul's statement? To die is gain. I don't think Paul is just trying to hype the Philippians up. I can say to die is gain pretty casually, having never had to stare death in the face. But what about Paul, who is facing the reality that he might be on the doorstep of his execution? What say you, Paul, to live? That's Christ. More of my Savior who I yearn to know. But to to die, to die is not loss. Philippians, let let me tell you something. To die, that is complete gain for me. Why? Because Paul knows that the only thing holding him back from embracing Jesus Christ, the one who loved him, who gave himself for him, is that moment of death. The Pilgrim's Progress depicts death as this wide river just before the celestial city. Christian has, the main character, has made a journey of life to this point. He's been looking for the celestial city. And as he wades into the water and is drowning, as he doubts whether he's worthy to enter into God's presence, whether his sins were prayed for, whether this was the end, just before the goal. But his friend, who's with them, is named Hopeful. And he is only knee-deep in that same water because he was remembering God's promises. And he had faith that he would make it through, not on his own strength, but on the word of God himself. Both make it to the other side, but their experiences of death couldn't have been more different. Paul seems more like hopeful. The river of death to Paul sounds like this sheer curtain, this veil that if you only touched it with the tip of a knife, it would split. And who would be on the other side except his Jesus? For Paul, to die meant fast-forwarding past all of those days that he would have spent knowing more, Christ, more of Christ and suddenly seeing Christ face to face. That's what leads him to say that it would be gain. So here Paul is weighing both options. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. They're both wonderful. I am hard-pressed between the two, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So he doesn't downplay the joy of life, the fact that we get to go on knowing Jesus Christ. But he does say there is one that is better. I want to be with Christ, because being with Christ is the best thing that I could ever experience. And I, I trust that this morning there are many of us who need to, need to be convinced by the Spirit that it is far better. That to be with Christ is, is better than the best moments of your life that you've experienced thus far. To be there with the one who you have, like Scripture says, whom you have not seen, 
but whom you have loved, to be with him is far better. He is with us as we are sojourners and exiles in this world. This is not our home, and we want to speak about it like it's not our home. So this is the part of the sermon where we do what most of us don't want to do. We think about what it would mean for you to die. Now, some of you might think it's easy for a young person to talk about death because they don't feel their body slowing or their friends aging and dying what seems like every six months now. And that's true. But this morning, we can talk about death in a, in a certain way. And my goal for, the, for those in this room who are being forced to think of your own death more and more, and those of us who need to go ahead and think about it with you, I want to talk about your death in the way that Paul talks about it. I want to talk about it as gain for you. I want to talk about it like that little curtain that stands between you and your Savior. Because the truth, the truth of the matter is, I'm weary. of living in a world that has death as its final say. Weary of living in a world where I see, I see death, I see it go on, we experience it, and yet there's nothing, there's no, no word to be said after. Where, where people leave the funeral, and are expected to just somehow live with what has gone on, as if it doesn't add another straw on the camel's back, that we, we feel it, we feel it, we feel our curse-stricken world. Because Adam's first sin brought the horrific reality of death into our lives, we have wept over our friends, over our family members. We have cringed at the thought of death. But we haven't yet and never will ward it off. We have turned our eyes away from it as much as possible, but it's inescapable. It will be here. And it will continue to plague this earth and mankind until Jesus victoriously throws death into the lake of fire, as Revelation tells us. So, we can talk about death in the most serious manner because Scripture is, is clear. Death is serious. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God said, you will surely die. And from that moment on, we've known nothing but death. But my hope this morning is that the gain of dying as a believer in Jesus Christ will become just as serious as death itself. That is where we look through the eyes of faith and say, I feel that death is real. I, you don't have to prove that to me. But it is also real that resurrected life 
is just as intense and serious and more real than death itself. Because one day, death will be no more. Jesus is real and is more powerful than death. So if your controlling desire becomes magnifying Christ at every point, then death is just another one of those points. But it's, it's a bit different. That's the point where you get to see Jesus in person. It's where you shed entangling sin and every ounce of shame and doubt like a raggedy coat. It's where your heart no longer aches and longs for something different because you will have exactly what you desire. Now we know that our bodies will not be resurrected until Jesus returns. But we also know that immediately upon death, our souls will be with Jesus in a complete way. And for those of you who are facing the reality that you have more years behind than you do ahead, let's talk about dying. Let's talk about what scares you the most about it. Because I cannot fathom how hard it will be to experience. In the same breath, though, I want to say to you that I refuse to talk about death with the same bleakness as the world. We... we, get sucked in and trapped to talk about death as if we grieve without hope with the same kind of head hung low God has made it abundantly clear that we have so much more to look forward to in fact Paul calls the Thessalonian believers who have died he calls them those who have fallen asleep this is for all of us because for many of us, our death might be closer than we plan. If we are Christ, this is a sleep that we'll wake up from. If you tremble at the thought of dying, Jesus might return first, but whether he does or you die like every man and woman before you, here's what's different for you as a Christian. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15. The first man was from the earth. A man of dust, that's Adam. The second man is from heaven, Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I find myself this morning trying hard to just like convince myself death is gain, death is gain, death is gain, right? And I have been so strengthened by by some of you older brothers and sisters who have said things like, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing Jesus. But the truth is, we won't get there by convincing ourselves. We have that picture in 1 Corinthians 15 of resurrection and Paul's words here in Philippians. What we really need is for the Holy Spirit to help us believe the word of God. He, he has said so already. He has laid out for us a picture that says you will be raised up just as the Jesus whom you believe in. You will be raised up just like him. So with that, I just want to pray that blessing for each of us this morning that we started with. May the controlling desire of your life be that Jesus would be magnified through you at every point so that you would rejoice at knowing him more in this life and that you would see your death as a doorway to gaining Christ fully. And we ask, Lord, may that be so for each of us this morning.